We're going to take a break from our walk through Isaiah. These, these next couple services to um, talk about this great time of the year for the Christian faith. And, and today's Palm Sunday. It's beginning of Passion Week. Um, good Friday. We will meet here again. We're actually, it's going to be real good because at our service, we're going to serve dinner so you can come. Al suggested the traditional um, Passover meal where we can go out and smear blood on the doorposts and, and all that, but I don't think the owners of this property was too thrilled with that idea. So we'll do something milder. Sorry, Al, sorry. But 5 p.m., yes, we'll have dinner. We're going to have a great service. Jim and Riley are going to, to go over it and, and, and take care of us during this time. And then Al's going to bring us an Easter message this time next week. And when he comes up, we will do the traditional, all the churches around that Al will walk up so, just, so we're prepared, and he'll say he is risen. And you all will say, that was really weak. Oh, I'm sorry. I mean, I should have noticed that your, your mouth was full. But in Soma, we have our own tradition on Palm Sunday, right? I'll come up and I say, he has ridden. And you say, yes, yes. I know a lot of, I got another pastor this morning that just like was groaning, going, is that, is that the best you can do? And it's like, well, what do you do? He's like, oh, nothing. So... Um, so this, this morning's message I want to talk, it's not based on a, a specific, it's, it's a small verse in Luke that I want to go over, but it's the picture that we see of Jesus as he be, enters Jerusalem for this week. Um, this should be an incredible scene, right? Here he is, the Messiah that was called out in all these Old Testament uh, things we've seen, like we're in Isaiah, right? And Isaiah has four very long passages dedicated to the suffering servant. And, and so it, this should be an incredible time. I mean, he's writing in, people are cheering, they're laying the palm branches down, signifying victory, and they're even putting their garments down, and he's writing in. And then when you do a Google search for this type of image, right? Jesus always looks stoic. Um, and he has this strange little light ball around his head. I, I don't know if it's supposed to be like a halo or what, but I don't think that was accurate for the time. Um, it's like he was always glowing. I don't think that was the case. Um, but we don't see one that I think is, is accurate for what he came through. It's amazing it's amazing that when you look at these pictures, he always seems to have this light blue sash like drawn over. I don't know if that's biblical, but um, as we see, we're, they're missing one of the most important things. So let's look at Luke 19, 41 and 42. Luke 19, 41 and 42. And it says, and when he drew near, and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make, that make peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. So to get a picture of this, he was not misty as he came across. The word there is he was loudly crying. I haven't seen a picture yet by doing a Google search that shows this. And what a picture it had to be. Think about this. People were laying down these branches. They were, they were giving him praise and all this, and he is loudly crying. Um, and, and the picture you get of this, because he's riding up, right? So as you're riding up, you get glimpses of Jerusalem. But when you come over the last ridge, this whole city just burst into view. And that's obviously the time seeing this, knowing why he was there for, led him into this loud wailing. 
knew his time was limited, and he knew how these people that were right now that were cheering for him would soon be screaming for his crucifixion. And the best that my mind can come up with is that this, this city, this people that he loved so much, right now he was heartbroken knowing at this time in his visit he would be rejected. We see early in Luke that Jesus, Jesus longed to protect this city that, and his people. It says in Luke 13, 34 and 35, Luke 13, 34 and 35, Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills its prophets and stone those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I will tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Of course, this time he's referring to when he tells them, saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord is what we are celebrating today, Palm Sunday. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, what a moment, what a moment and a time to come and just worship you. We see your beauty, your, your majesty. We see how much you love, all wrapped up in this time frame. How can we miss it? The fact that you willingly came, you walked this earth, you left us such powerful words, and then you willingly gave up your life to make a way for us. May we stay focused, especially when we think of what this week represents. We love you so much. Amen. So Luke, Luke 19, 41 through 42 is why I want to base today's message on because earlier in 951, when we look at that, Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. And this was two months prior to this time now. And what always got me is when you think of him setting his face towards Jerusalem, it means he knew what was going to happen two months later. And I want to just kind of walk through these range of emotions, right, that our Savior had from the time he set his face until we see him on this colt crying out in his love for Jerusalem. And years ago, that line really struck me. I probably read it hundreds of times, but it really struck me that... Um, that he did this from this time, from Good Friday, and, and just from the Bible passages you see, is our Savior being faithful, but also moving from this wide range of emotions, dealing with these hard-hearted Pharisees. It's just amazing. So we do not serve a Savior here that has no feelings and no emotions. And trust me, as we go through this, you'll see, as Al winds up this Passion Week, this was no cakewalk for Jesus. Um, God asked him to do this, and he didn't tell him, hey, you know what, you're going to do this, I'm going to remove all pain, all feeling. No, Jesus bared it all out of obedience and willingness to his Father and went to the cross for his people. So let's look at 9, 51 through 55 first. Luke 9, 51 through 55. It says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. 
And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for them. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciple James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want to tell us, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. So notice the emotions here of Jesus as this time is drawing near. Because think about that. You know that feeling, right, when you get called into the, the boss's office or, or whatever we can equate to this final thing. Um, I know that's not a good example. Jesus going to the cross, us going. But I see it in my own thing where I have people that I'm friends with and I call them into my office just for a good thing and they are outside panicking. And they're asking everyone, why does, why does he want to see me? Why does he want to see me? So the only thing I could get was kind of like that. I apologize. But it's that feeling when he set his face to go to Jerusalem. It's like, that's where my focus is. I'm only focused on that. So when, a, so when these guys came to him with this unimportant, small and pity issue, like, hey, let's burn down this whole village. Um, you get the idea that he just shrugged him off and moved on. And, and no doubt these two, being young, they had just passed by the region where I'm sure Jesus pointed out and said, hey, that mountain range up there, that's where Elijah called down fire and, and smoked the uh, prophets of Baal. So no doubt that was still in their mind and they were willing to do this, but Jesus like, that's not why I'm here. And we've been going, we've been going through Isaiah, right? And these chapters we've been going through talks about when Jesus is going to come back and do that, his second advent, when he's going to come down and just take out everyone. But this was not his time. So this time leading up to Passion Week is again is where we're going to focus. So the long-awaited Messiah is here, like all the prophets wrote about and his time on earth here as a savior is drawing to an end. And he is calling out all these religious leaders. And I want us to look at these passages. And this time, I want you to use a different filter. We should all need to use a different filter. Because usually we focus on the messages, warnings, and parables. But I want us in this thing to focus on Jesus and knowing where he is ultimately headed. Let's, let's just see what his emotions are like. Because um, we don't have a Savior who is incapable of knowing what we are going through. He knows it because he's experienced it, and he's experienced on a deeper level. So then, you're going to get a homework assignment, and you can do this in your community groups, because we don't have that Isaiah passage to go through. I want you to use that same filter and go through Passion Week and see if you can notice his emotions in his teachings, his answers, and his exchanges with these religious leaders. And then the deep conversations he has with his disciples. And if you want to know where to start, I'll give you where to start in all four books right now. So the first one, Matthew, you can start with, with chapter 21. In Mark, you can start with Mark 11. In Luke, 19:28, And then one of the easiest to remember, John 12:12. 12, 12. So let's start look by looking at Jesus' emotions leading up to the triumphal entry. In Luke 9:57 through 62. We see three examples of, of a weak devotion to Christ and his response to them. The first one in 957, uh, someone comes up and says, I will follow you anywhere. Jesus basically tells them, you know what? I'm homeless. For some reason, that person was no longer willing to follow him. And then another one in 959, 
Jesus says, come follow me. And the answer is, hey, let me bury my father first. Jesus says, no, basically go proclaim the kingdom of God. Seems cold, right? I mean, this person, all he wanted to do is go bury his father first. But you've got to understand in this day what that really meant was, hey, I'll follow you, but first I want to wait till my father dies and I want to get my inheritance. Then I'm willing. And Jesus was telling him, no, no. The kingdom of God is worth so much more than the inheritance you would get from your father. So 961 says, another says, I will follow you, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus was saying to go back and say goodbye was no guarantee that person would ever come back to join Christ's group. And then we see in chapter 10, chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, Jesus starts evangelism training. Jesus gets his ready, followers ready for the time when he's not going to be there to begin evangelism. And we know about the 12 disciples he did this with around Galilee, right? He sent them out. But now we see a larger band that the ones that followed Jesus were split up. And this group was not sent to the same area of Galilee. They were sent to the smaller towns and villages to do this. So then in 10, 13, and 15, we see a woe to the cities. The cities of Chorazon, Bethsaida, and Capernaum are listed, and we're not told of any incredible wrongdoing they performed compared to Sodom and, or another wicked city, but what they're being condemned for here is the saviors here, and they are indifferent to Christ. Jesus is in their midst so this is the sin that would lead to their judgment and punishment. So Christ and his message is here now, in these cities being indifferent to the Son of God, and he tells them so. He tells them what awaits for them. And in Luke 10, 17 through 20, this is probably some of the only joy we see out of Jesus in this march to the cross as he and the 72 celebrate the wonderful experience. And, and the best part is, can you imagine that? Jesus confirms to them that their names are written in heaven. And in 1023 through 24, this group of 12, what the religious leaders felt was unimpressive. So you had fishermen, a tax collector, another trademan, um, now they're, they're Jesus' disciples, and they received this message in 23 and 24 from Jesus. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you, many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Can you imagine that? Can you just let that sink in for a moment? You know, you're one of his disciples, and, and Jesus is telling you, all these scriptures, all these great names in the scriptures, they longed to be at this time, and they didn't get it. But you, uh, this fisherman, you, this other one, you get three years of seeing what these people long to see and hear what they long to hear. And, and these 12 witnessed Jesus on earth in a very special way. Isaiah, David, Zechariah, and others wrote about this day. And these disciples, who were very young in their walk and not yet fully realizing what the plan that they were signed up for, was they were witnessing this great moment in history. Now in Luke 11, 29 through 32, Luke 11, 29 through 32, the sign of Jonah. 
When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up with judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now you've got to imagine this society is not like ours. This Asian culture is an honor-based society, saving face, very pride for people. So Jesus telling them that they were a very evil generation, imagine how well that went over, how well that went over. While true, I can guarantee you it didn't sit with them well. The gloves were now off, and you're going to notice more and more as we go through this, especially during Passion Week, Jesus just giving it to them, giving them the truth right to their faces. Jesus was calling them out, and they really needed to understand. He was telling them that Gentiles, imagine this, you're a Jew, you're in your whole garb, and Jesus is telling you these Gentiles understood the message. You were missing it, and you will be condemned. How well do you think that went over? We're, we're going to see more. Luke eleven thirty-seven through 53. Luke eleven thirty-seven through 53. Here we are. Jesus is a guest in a Pharisee's home. He was a guest in a Pharisee's home. This was not a storekeeper or a clerk's home. He was at the home of a religious leader, very prideful, and he would be expecting honor and praise, which he was accustomed to for having people in his home. Instead, let's see what Jesus says. Verses 39 and 41, And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who make the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. So Jesus comes over for dinner. And quickly, notice this Pharisee, in his foolishness, not understanding what was before him. But as Jesus came in, he started measuring him up, right? He started looking, hey, there's this human checklist I have, and Jesus is not meeting it. Um, Jesus didn't measure up to those standards and the, and the outward acts that were known and required among the human leaders. Jesus, knowing their hearts, and probably read the Pharisees' face as he had this smug look, seeing that Jesus didn't perform these acts, called him and the other Pharisees out on their foolishness. Um, these leaders need to forget their long list of man-made ceremonial rules and experience a true heart change. Now, Jesus wanted their love and for them to give God the, the love out of a pure, clean heart, and everything is clean for them. And then we move into verse 42. Jesus is telling the Pharisees things that will lead to their ruin or judgment with these statements that begin with woe. So I can imagine Jesus is not calmly sitting there, sipping tea, stating all this. But I'm sure it's a very heated conversation. 
And if he's in teaching mode, I guarantee you, he was standing during this time, which was common. And he is getting his point across very well. We see it in the Bible, and this is going to be around forever, these statements that he made. So, after starting off with the introduction to the Pharisees by calling them fools, we move on to what I call the woe-woe section. We see all these woes in verse 42, 43, 44, 46, 47, and 52. The skip in woes from 48 to 50 is only because there's a very heavy judgment statement. So let's start with 42. 42 says, But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So Jesus is calling them out on their high and mighty appearance of being faithful. You've got to imagine, look what they were doing. They're coming in, they're saying, we are so faithful and righteous that we're even tithing on our spices. But nowhere is that written for them to do. That's not a requirement. But Jesus is telling them, you know what, you're missing the big picture. So you're walking into the temple, you're walking through the market, you're getting your praises, you're stepping around the poor and needy, but then you do the minor thing of tithing your mint. You're missing the big picture. Your requirement that I gave you was to care for widow and orphans and take care of the poor, and you're missing that, and you're walking around them to come in and do your little acts of faithfulness. Then 43 tells him, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greeting in the marketplaces. So here we see Jesus is calling them out for their love of praise and appearance. So I can only imagine sitting there doing this and you see what they're wearing. And we know from other passages they loved the long flowing robes. And the more righteous they wanted to appear, the bigger the hat they had on. So if you imagine what Jesus was wearing during all this, I doubt if he had the same type of robes on. He might even be a little dirty. And he might have a case of bedhead still going on. Or, or windblown hair, you never know. But these guys were dressed to the hilt in their finest costumes. And he's calling them out. 44, it says, Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. Ouch. Ouch. That's, he could have stopped right there and, and just walked off. That is such a hard statement. Jesus was telling them and everyone around them that these guys are so filled with hidden wickedness it's not on the outside, it's, it's on the inside. So while they were high and mighty to the public, inside they were as corrupt as can be. So imagine how this was going for the Pharisees in this dinner party. Um, Jesus is saying this, and he's not pulling any punches here in this gentleman's house. And we don't need to imagine because in verse 45, a Pharisee tells them, hey, you know what? You're insulting us. And I'm sure they were looking for the rock pile as Jesus was saying all this. But in verse 46, we see Jesus doesn't even skip a beat, right? He says, woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear. And you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. So Jesus is pointing out, besides them being so corrupt, they're also filled with hypocrisy. They had no problem setting up all these extra-biblical laws and requirements that were so hard to obtain, 
that they weren't willing to do it themselves. Okay, verse 47. This woe is extremely powerful. And it says, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. So Jesus uses this passage from 47 to 51 to call this generation murderers of God's prophets. He called their fathers murderers, and they are witnesses, and therefore by the way they live, they consented to the killings. Jesus is adamantly telling them that all the bloodshed from the prophets, from the foundation of the world to now is charged to this generation. And it all started with Abel. So the punishment Jesus is talking about, no doubt, took place with the dismantling of the temple in 70 A.D., and then he continues in verse 52, saying, Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. Jesus here is condemning those that pervert the word and change the meaning to suit what they want. And therefore, they teach false doctrine to the people. You can only imagine this was very heated and Christ loudly, loudly condemned the Pharisees during this dinner party. And I, I had to wonder, because I wonder if anyone actually, after all that, after that appetizer took place, if anyone actually ate the meal. Um, and the response was by the Pharisees, was you can imagine. Jesus gave this to him, and as he left, um, the people he called out, they were in close pursuit, and I'm sure they were many times even trying to block his way as they were so mad, they're trying to challenge him and get him to slip up so they can charge him with blasphemy and probably stone him real quick. Um, but it didn't happen. And you can see that Jesus in this passage was very adamant and forceful with these judgments and that these Pharisees were hot after Jesus got through with them. And again, okay, now skipping over to John, John 10, 22 through 32. This is a time Jesus came into Jerusalem uh, before the triumphal entry. Triumphal entry. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the Colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews, the religious leaders, gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answers them, I told you, and you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. 
My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? So from that, the one thing I, I look back at the passage says, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stone those sent to her. Jesus is telling these proud, self-serving religious leaders that they do not belong to God and therefore they're going to miss out on eternal life. The very thing they asked to know, he tells them in verse 30, that he and the Father are one. And how they respond? They did not respond like we see others that belong to Jesus. They did not fall on a knee. They did not go to worship. They responded by picking up stones. So, at these times, Jesus was being pressed on all sides by these sons of Satan in their attempts to get him to slip up so they had a legal charge against him. And you can see by Jesus' answers, he's very direct with them, and he's probably very tired of their pressing because he knew these are not my sheep and they may not ever become my sheep. And he gives the example of not being politically correct with his answers, but being very truthful. Because if you think about it, if you look back earlier at being in a dinner party with him, you might want to have a little manners and patience. Um, no. No, he gave them a tirade. So Luke, back to Luke, 12, 4 through 5, have no fear. And Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear whom, who after he has killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now, you imagine Jesus is in a large crowd teaching this. And he's speaking not only to his people, but making sure the others can hear. And he's telling them, don't just fear those that can kill the body, but fear the one that after you're dead can cast you into hell. Because he knew a lot of people were leery and weary of religious leaders because they were murderers. If you did anything to oppose them or come into their path, they would take you out like they're trying to do to Jesus right now, who's infringing on their power and their social status. Luke 12, 22 through 23. Luke 12, 22 to 23. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about anything in your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you'll put on. For life is more important, is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Um, look at this passage. Jesus knows what path he's on. He knows what awaits him in Jerusalem during his last Passover on earth as its Savior. So what a powerful statement, knowing what will soon transpire. Jesus, who has to be going through this, knowing what's coming, is telling the crowd not to be anxious about anything. He's reminding us that our life on this planet is more than food, and our bodies are more than the clothing we put on it. He reminds us that our days are numbered, and we can't change anything about worrying about it. Nothing. Jesus tells us, or reminds us, to look to God's kingdom at all times. At all times. And a backup to this, 
is in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. And it says, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for the eternal weight of glory, glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are unseen are transient. The things that are unseen are, uh, the things that are seen are transient. The things that are unseen are eternal. Jesus in these two sections is telling us to pursue to pursue the right things while on this earth. God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, and the souls of all those around us that aren't believers. They must be our focus while we're on this earth. He knew and knows all about this as his mission on earth here was winding down. He's telling us, even us, to focus on the eternal and not the things of this world. Now back into Luke. Luke 12, Luke 12, 54 through 56. So he's emphasizing this statement about knowing, knowing what we should be looking on. And he also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be a scorching heat. And it happens. And then he says loudly, you hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky but why don't you know how to interpret the present time? So with full power, Jesus is telling us that, you know what? You know how to interpret the weather. I just use Alexa. But he's calling us hypocrites because we are so good at looking at the perishable. That's our first nature, right? Instead of looking to the eternal. Luke 13, Luther, Luke 13, 10 through 17. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, not on the Sabbath day. And the Lord answered him loudly again, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it to water it? And ought not this, and ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan has bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And he said these things, and all of his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were being done by him. So here we get, I can't even imagine this. Here is people not looking at the eternal. Jesus heals a woman that was bound for 18 years. Where else had anyone seen this? Where? I don't think so. And he frees her. And the crowd should have gone wild, and they would later, but instead this ruler of the synagogue chastised the Son of God for healing on the Sabbath and for not knowing that he 
was the Lord of the Sabbath. And again, Jesus is laying into us for our being unaware of who was before him and what was actually occurring. I, I can't even imagine a healing of that magnitude. And then someone saying, why would you do that on the Sabbath? <laughs> can't imagine it. Now, a hard saying in Luke 18. Luke 18, 31 through 34. Jesus is telling his disciples for a third time that he will be put to death in Jerusalem. And taking the twelve away from the crowd, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, he will be mocked, shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of this, these things. Thus the saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. So he was basically telling them everything that was written about his death, like in Isaiah 53, in Daniel 9.26, and Zechariah 13, 7. And he was saying, this will now, in front of your eyes, soon be fulfilled. Even knowing what awaited on the other side of that life, I guarantee it had to be hard for him to think about and talk about. And think about what James and John wanted Jesus to do back to that Samaritan village. Uh, few weeks earlier they wanted Jesus our Messiah to call fire down and destroy it but then Jesus in Luke 19 9 and 10 reminds us what he came to do Luke 19 9 and 10 he sees Zacchaeus he says Zacchaeus we're going to your house now Zacchaeus lived in the very rich part of Jericho Two Jerichos, a Roman Jericho that also had the rich tax collectors, and then a poor Jericho with the Jews in it. And after meeting with Zacharias, he repented and demonstrated a proper response to God's mercy. And what was Jesus saying after that? Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man, this is why he's here now, came to seek and save the lost. So we see that Jesus was no robot that came to fulfill a mission and then depart. Jesus came as fully man and he walked as we walked, felt the same emotions we have and showed us that he had compassion, love, mercy, righteous anger, and frustration. And at the end of his time here on earth, Jesus showed us the greatest gift we will ever see, love. His willingness to go to the cross and provide a way for us to be with God forever. This was done out of a love for God and God's people. This love, Paul writes about it in 1 Corinthians. And he concludes chapter 12 telling us that there is this higher gift, this higher spiritual gift that he's going to show us. And it is still a more excellent way. So then he shows us what this gift is in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And he explains to us why love is the highest spiritual gift. In verse 7 of 13, he says, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Sound familiar? Kind of sounds what we've been talking about what Jesus has gone through, right? In verse 8, 
we read that love never ends. All other gifts, all other gifts are going to pass away. Knowledge, prophecy, all this. But love is forever. This is why Christians, we love this time of year. Our reminder of Jesus' victory over death and our assurance of life forever with God and experiencing experiencing this perfect love. This love, this powerful love, was the strength that Jesus used to endure and persevere during this extreme time and especially during Passion Week. Praise God for his example. Let's pray. Jesus, we can only look to you and just praise your name. And just praise your name. And we think of what you did out of obedience, what you endured, endured, what you witnessed, and all. All for the sake of your Father, your great love for him, and your love for his people. We want to thank you so much for our election and that we know, much like you told those 12 disciples, our names are written in heaven and what a wonderful time it will be as we get to stand before you and just praise your name forever. We thank you so much for this week and what it means to us. Help us to follow that homework assignment and just witness what you went through on our account. We can never say thank you enough and we have forever to try. Amen.